One of the most interesting and moving and meaningful parts of General Assembly each year is actually something that, unfortunately, in some ways, is, is only for ministers. It's a service called the 2550 service. And it's for people, it's for ministers that are Unitarian Universalist ministers, it's for their 25th anniversary of their ordination and the 50th anniversary of their ordination. And so everyone who has been serving as a UU minister for 25 years, they all vote on who among them they want to deliver a sermon to all Unitarian Universalist ministers, and all the 50th ones do the same. And it was interesting, that one of the reflections that was shared by, on that 50 um, sermon this year was the experience of preaching on the Sunday after John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And, you know, thinking, my sermon that I wrote on gratitude just isn't, going to work. And so I am still going to preach the sermon I plan to preach, but after this past week, I felt like there were some other, a few things that needed to be said. As you've heard me say before, I'm grateful that the windows of this sanctuary are clear and not stained glass. And a lot of tradition, stained glass is meant to try to emulate heaven and pretend that on Sunday morning we put away the cares of this world and, you know, rehearse for being in heaven. And I think it's important to have transparent panes that let us see outside into this world, to let the world see into us and remind us that what we're doing here very much should impact how we live in the world and should take the world into consideration, even if it means that blindingly bright light does sometimes shine in to your eyes. And as you use, we're committed to working for more peace, more beauty, and more justice in this world. And although we can't always take time to name every joy and every victory and to hold up and mourn every sorrow and worship each week, sometimes I do think it's important to pause and offer a brief reflection about what all has happened since we were together last in this sanctuary. This morning, of course, I'm thinking particularly of the Supreme Court rulings on June 25th and 26th. But before sharing a few thoughts on this rulings, I'd like to actually rewind the clock 10 years because I remember exactly where I was a decade ago on June 26th, 2003. I was in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I was attending a religion conference. I'd been traveling a lot that summer and hadn't really been following the news closely, so I wasn't really anticipating these Supreme Court announcements. So I was particularly surprised when I just flipped on headline news that morning and saw the Supreme Court's ruling of Lawrence versus Texas. Justice Anthony Kennedy, writing for a 6-3 majority, had struck down the sodomy law in Texas and by extension invalidated sodomy laws in 13 other states. A decade ago in Lawrence versus Texas, the United States Supreme Court affirmed that intimate sexual conduct between consenting adults acting in private is part of the liberty that is protected under the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. And I'm taking the time now and in a few other places to add some of the nerdy details about the Constitution because I actually think they're vitally important. Uh, especially, I think, recently in light of the Tea Party movement, there's been uh, some progressives have sort of I think abandoned the Constitution from time to time, and it's only allowed to be sacred to, to Tea Partiers. And to me, that's, that's a terrible mistake that I'm sure I'll have more to say about in future sermons, but the, con the Constitution is such a remarkable thing that it enshrined liberal religious enlightenment values in the founding document of this country. It's a truly remarkable document that I think we should pay attention to the details of, and I know that many of you do. 
And one reason that the news of Lawrence versus Texas stopped me in my tracks that morning 10 years ago is that I had just spent the past three years attending seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, and serving as the graduate assistant all three years for the Divinity School's first out gay professor, who let's just say was met during that time with no small amount of discrimination and controversy in the state of Texas. So I was stunned to see that the highest court in the land had just made same-sex sexual activity legal in every U.S. state and territory. What a welcome change. So I turned off the TV and went downstairs to attend my first meeting of the day. And on the TV in the hotel lobby, I saw the announcement that Strom Thurmond had died. That news also caused me to literally stop in my tracks and do a double-take. I shook my head in disbelief. As many of you know, I spent the first 22 years of my life in South Carolina. And for all 22 of those years, Strom Thurmond was my senator. Indeed, he left office six months before his death as the only senator to reach the age of 100 while still in office. Thurmond, of course, famously ran for president in 1948 as a states' rights Dixiecrat candidate and switched his allegiance from the Democratic to the Republican Party to protest the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Previously, in opposition to the Civil Rights Act of 1957, he conducted the longest filibuster ever by a lone senator at 24 hours, 18 minutes, nonstop. And although I didn't know it at the time, the irony was that six months after Thurman's death, The news broke that when he was 22, he fathered a child with his family's 16-year-old African-American maid. And although Thurman never publicly acknowledged his daughter, he paid for her education at a historically black college and passed money on to her for some time. Now, even without knowing that last ironic twist, I still remember the exact words that went through my mind that morning after seeing both those pieces of news. The world can change. You can have legal gay sex in Texas, and Strom Thurmond is dead. And, well, what you say in South Carolina is, bless his heart. So, now, this past week witnessed some parallel roller coaster headlines. On Tuesday, the Supreme Court struck down the heart of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 by a 5-4 to four vote freeing nine states, mostly in the South, to change their election laws without advanced federal approval. In a dissent read aloud from the bench, which shows, so instead of just filing a dissent, if a dissent is read by the bench, it shows strong, vehement disapproval. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg cited the words of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., and said his legacy and the nation's commitment to justice for all had been, quote, disserviced by today's decision. She noted that the focus of the Voting Rights Act had changed from first-generation barriers to ballot access to second-generation barriers, like racial gerrymandering and laws requiring at-large voting in places with a sizable black majority. She concluded that, quote, the court errs egregiously by overriding Congress's decision. Those of you who were part of our study earlier this year of Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, mass incarceration in an age of colorblindness, know that Justice Ginsburg is terribly right. While Congress remains free to try to impose federal oversight on states where voting rights are at risk, we all know what our current Congress is like, and the chances that the current Congress can reach agreement on where federal oversight is required are small. 
As the New York Times columnist Charles Blow wrote this past week, Chief Justice John Roberts is right that things have changed dramatically. But Blow says, I submit so have certain tactics, just as black civil rights leaders still fighting a huge prison industrial complex. Um, police policies like stop and frisk and predatory lending practices. Ask women's rights leaders still fighting for equal pay, defending a woman's right to the sovereign authority over her body, including full access to a wide range of reproductive options. Ask pro-immigration groups fighting a wave of anti-immigrant sentiment. Now, while Tuesday's ruling calls us to redouble our anti-racist work, The good news handed down 24 hours later was that 10 years to the day of Lawrence versus Texas, Justice Anthony Kennedy, again writing for the majority, struck down the 1996 Defense of Marriage Act, or as some people have called it, the Defamation of Marriage Act, ruling that DOMA is unconstitutional as a deprivation of the liberty of a person protected by the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution, that no person shall be deprived of life liberty, and property without due process of law. As a result, same-sex marriage couples are now able to receive more than a 1,000 federal benefits previously reserved only for opposite-sex couples. To quote President Barack Obama, I applaud the Supreme Court's decision to strike down DOMA. This was discrimination enshrined in law. It treated loving, committed gay and lesbian couples as a separate and lesser class of people. The Supreme Court has righted that wrong, and our country is better off for it. We're a people who declared that we are all created equal, and the love we commit to one another must be equal as well. The laws of our land are catching up to the fundamental truth that millions of Americans hold in our hearts, that when all Americans are treated as equal, no matter who they are or whom they love, we're all more free. In the coming months, keep your eye on Illinois on Hawaii, on New Jersey, on Nevada, on Oregon, and likely other states in which same-sex marriage may soon become legal. The Human Rights Campaign has said that its goal now, shocking even to itself, is for same-sex marriage to be legal in all 50 states in five years. We'll see. In a symbolic coincidence, this past Friday was also the 44th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, which launched the modern gay rights movement. Reverend Peter Morales, the president of the Unitarian Universalist Association, also spoke out this week saying, while I am disappointed that the Supreme Court did not declare the freedom to marry as a constitutionally protected equal protection that would apply to all states, I applaud this historic step to equality. Unitarian Universalists have been vocal supporters of marriage equality for decades, and that work is coming to fruition. There is still so much work to be done to ensure equal protection for all who live and love in our country. As we know, marriage equality strengthens families, it protects children, and it ensures the basic rights of citizenship for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender citizens of this country. It remains my fervent hope that soon marriage equality will be afforded to all, and UUs will continue to stand on the side of love in the meantime with all families. There's much more to say about all these cases, as well as the contrast between Strom Thurmond's famously racist filibuster in contrast to the filibuster made this past week in Texas by Senator Wendy Davis in the fight for reproductive justice. But I'll stop here for now, and don't worry, I've shortened my sermon to uh, (laughs) help balance the time I know that I'm using now. 
But I said earlier that 10 years ago, the first thought that went through my mind in that hotel lobby was that the world really can change. You can now have legal gay sex in Texas and Strom Thurmond is dead. A decade later, the comment that most arrestingly summarizes the tumult of headlines this past week is a comment that I saw on Twitter. If I understand everything coming out of the Supreme Court, two black men can get married, but they might have trouble voting. (laughs) My takeaway then from these two weeks that are 10 years apart is the reaffirmation that I'm not sure that I believe that old adage that the arc of the universe is long, but that it bends towards justice. I don't know if the arc of the universe necessarily bends towards justice, but I do know that we need to do everything in our power to continue bending that arc toward justice for all people. This morning it felt important to pause in this sacred time and place to celebrate and savor victories, as well as to remember and recommit to the work that remains to be done to achieve our goal as Unitarian Universalists for peace, liberty, and justice for all. And to say again how grateful I am to be on that journey with all of you. Who has attended a previous Unitarian Universalist General Assembly? Okay, quite a few hands. I'd be interested to hear from you over the, you know, what, what it was like and has been over the years. So that's interesting to see quite a few of you. This year, almost 3,500 people, Unitarian Universalists, were in Louisville, Kentucky for General Assembly, which we like to call GA, and that includes 232 youth. They represented 611 congregation in all 50 U.S. states and one Canadian province. Given the size of our congregation's membership, we're allocated four delegates. Now, um, as many people as you want to can go, and sometimes it's good not to be a delegate. There's about 20 hours of plenaries, um, business meetings, so you may just want to go. But at least for the first time in a long time, we sent a full uh, envoy of delegates to General Assembly. Myself, my wife Megan, Carl Crum, our incoming president of the UUCF Board of Trustees. About, are you counting down the hours yet, Karen? Is that... <laughs> Uh, the clock goes down at the end of June. She's done a great job. And Mary Bowman Crum were our four delegates. And at this year's GA, being a voting delegate really mattered. This was an election year for the UUA moderator, which is known as the chief governance officer. How many of you aspired to be that when you, uh, when you grew up? The moderator is chair of the UUA board, um, heads the plenary business sessions at General Assembly, is the highest volunteer position in the UUA, and the election process to elect a new moderator is serious business, actually. It's an incredibly vital and influential position and was decided this year by 40 votes. Jim Key got 945 and Tamara Payne Alex 905. Four of those votes were cast by your four UUCF delegates. And I've asked our delegates to each share just for two or three minutes of the most about their experience at GA, about what really resonated with them the most, uh, what they're bringing back to, they may not be able to tell you all of it, but they can maybe give you a teaser about some of what they're bringing back to you uh, or what they're going to incorporate in their own lives. And after each of these three reports, um, you can remain seated and we'll sing a verse of hymn 1008. You can go ahead and turn to that if you want, when your heart is in a holy place. I chose this hymn because there's something deeply moving about what happens when you gather 3,500 Unitarian Universalists in one place. Now, admittedly, it can also get a little cantankerous from time to time, but it's the closest most of us will ever get in the foreseeable future to experiencing what it feels like to be in a UU megachurch. (laughs) So... 
we'll start with Mary and then sing verse 1. We'll hear from Carl and then sing verse 2 and then Megan and hear verse 3. And after Megan, there'll be about a minute of silence for you both to reflect on these reports as well as to think about those places where your heart feels like it is in a holy place. Um, both Laura and Reverend Carl are absolutely correct with over 3,000 and 3,500 UUs in one large meeting room. There was a lot of energy, and I thoroughly enjoyed it and hope I brought plenty of energy back with me. As a result of attending GA, I feel part of a larger UU community and found that there are many, many resources that I think we can use here, human, print, and electronic. Although most of the UUs there fit Carl's and my profile as senior white citizens, I was also impressed by the youth and the young adult caucuses. These young people make me feel positive about UU's future, and I hope some UUCF young people can attend next year in Providence, Rhode Island. I was also impressed with how good the workshops were. Perhaps because several of us at UUCF are forming a local interfaith social justice group, I was aware how often I heard interfaith coalitions are extremely important. Use them. The interfaith uh, cooperation was the theme of Ibu Patel's uh, speaking at the Ware lecture, and I encourage you to listen to that online. Patel is a Muslim who built and heads the youth interfaith, who heads the interfaith youth core, and he called religion a bridge of cooperation, not a barrier of division. Uh, as I said, the lecture is on the UUA website. That interfaith message was also emphasized in a workshop titled Building the Movement to End the New Jim Crow. I attended this workshop because UUCF members in are volunteering in prisons and Phyllis Liddell's working to involve us with the Frederick NAACP. And many of us, as Reverend Carl noted, did read Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. I learned other congregations around the U.S. are also working on this issue and the incarceration of so many young black males is interwoven with a lack of reading ability, with white privilege, laws that mandate long sentence for use of certain drugs preferred by minorities, police stops of young blacks for a minor or no reason, and most importantly, the growth of privately owned for-profit prisons. In Oklahoma, the situation is so bad that the well-respected director of prisons resigned in early June, saying his Christian values were at odds with the push he was receiving from uh, especially the governor and also the, rep the uh, legislators. To It was at odds for him to push to fill prisons. And so he resigns. I learned a lot. I came away I, in general energized, and I, I plan to return to GA in the future, and I hope many of you will go also. This will be shorter. <laughs> uh, I was impressed in the plenary sessions with the commitment to, to democracy in having all voices heard. Uh, the technology was there to allow off-site delegates from across the nation 
to call in, participating in the dialogue on issues. Uh, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't attend a general assembly when the opportunity arises. It was uplifting to be there and feel the commitment of 3,000 people to justice, concern for the less fortunate, and for helping UU congregations grow and thrive. I appreciated the workshops where participants really participated in serious discussions on issues that mattered to us. They also had very nice selection of t-shirts and bumper stickers <laughs> in the exhibit hall. And that's back to the topic of civil rights. Um, so go if you can. The next GA is June 25th, 29th in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, not that far away in distance or time. I would say that for me, the most transformational aspect of attending General Assembly was a workshop that I went to um, that focused on what does it mean to create or live into a Unitarian Universalist home. And so I want you to just take a, a minute to think about if someone were to come into your home, um, how would that person necessarily know that you adhere to Unitarian Universalism? And there's a joke that was told and also tweeted um, in my workshop. If, let's say, Unitarian Universalism was made illegal, would there be enough evidence to convict you? <laughs> so, okay. Um, for myself, I found I was interested in the workshop having grown up in a Jewish family um, and having many markers in my home that indicated a commitment to Judaism. Um, Having married a person who came out of a Protestant orientation, we didn't or, but who was a religion major, we did have a lot of markers in our home of religion, um, but nothing really identified us as having a specific faith tradition. And so um, I, I plan, I hope, on doing some kind of more detailed um, workshop or friendly forum within this congregation at some point in the future to share more in depth what I learned. Um, but I think the most important lesson is that what has the power to transform the world isn't necessarily going to happen in the room um, or the walls of the sanctuary. That what has the power to transform the world is probably going to happen in the way we live our lives, um, in the places where we spend the most time, in our homes um, and in our workplaces. And so um, while, yes, we can have symbols or rituals that connect our Unitarian Universalist belief system um, to those places, I think the challenge for me um, was thinking more concretely about what I, can I personally do um, in my daily life to bring into being the seven principles um, that form this particular tradition. I don't necessarily have anything concrete to give you today because it's something that I'm still considering, but um, I hope to in the future. Thank you. Now, there's a lot more to say about General Assembly, and there's going to be about three more sermons this summer that come out of that, so I won't make you listen to it all um, right now. One of the images that comes to mind about General Assembly is trying to drink from a fire hose. Uh, <laughs> it's not easy. 
or in a more positive sense, maybe of a of a broken fire hydrant. I mean, because in summer, I mean, a, a fire hose or a fire, you know, it can be a real joyous um, time of dancing, of singing, of being together, of playing, and that's a lot of, with kindred spirits, and that's a lot of what General Assembly is. And from 7 a.m. in the morning till almost midnight every day, there's about 20 things or more happening concurrently. So when they say don't try to do everything, I mean, it would be physically impossible. And when you get 3,500 you use together, there's always something interesting going on. Uh, as, as you heard a little bit from Carl Crum, there'll be, uh, the next GA will be in Providence. Other upcoming ones are in Portland, uh, Columbus, Kansas City. But I would encourage you, if you're able at some point, to, to try to attend one that will work over time. The UUA is doing this, too, to try to work on scholarships, to try to work on bringing costs down. Uh, and especially if you have young people, um, teenagers, um, you know, we kind of say 18 to 35-ish uh, young people, the Young Adults uh, Caucus and the Youth Caucus they're really stellar. I mean, they're really impressive young people. And I'd love to see our stellar young people in dialogue and forming relationships with UUs across the continent, just as I'd like to see all of you doing that. You leave GA, as you heard, with just a much stronger sense that what we do here is one small and one vitally important part but just one part in this giant movement of Unitarian Universalism. And, and I think I mentioned also that if some of you are thinking, wait, they were only talking about being gone like five days. Why did Carl say he was gone eight days? There's actually a pre-General Assembly uh, ministry days, and I'll be sharing some about that as well. One thing to be um, briefly quite serious for a moment that I wanted to be sure I said from General Assembly is that one thing that happened in those pre-General Assembly ministry days is a meeting of the Unitarian Universalist Ministers Association. And at that meeting, they took a long and complicated 182 words that are meant to prevent clergy sexual misconduct and they shortened them to a clear and concise 21 words. And my concern is that discussions like that often end up only happening amongst clergy. And as a result of that, I think that lack of transparency has contributed to abuses that have happened. And it's not just Unitarian Universalism, and it's not just Roman Catholicism. Every organization of human beings that I'm aware of has sexual misconduct in its past. So I wanted to share these 21 words with you both for me, but also just for any congregation that you're involved in in the future. So those 21 words are that every UU minister is, is ethically bound to follow and can be brought up you know, on trial, if, uh, if that's the right word, if it's broken, is I will not engage in sexual conduct, contact, sexualized behavior, or a sexual relationship with any person I serve as a minister. It's just simple straight, clear, concise, 21 words. So again, I just wanted to name that because I do think that that lack of transparency about what exactly do ministers do and how do you spend your time and what are your ethical guidelines, I think that's contributed to misconduct in the past. 
And as I said, um, GA is also this sort of macrocosm. It's sort of UUCF writ large, and it's fascinating. You, know, you walk down the hall, and there's this huge conference of UU Christians having an open communion, and you go one more step down to another huge conference room, and there's the UU pagans um, celebrating summer solstice. You have Saturday night service of the living tradition, and it's um, led by this African-American minister from Tulsa, Oklahoma, who's a UU music minister, and it's got gospel, and it's um, they're singing. Uh, spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me, and then you go to, and it's pissing off the humanists, and then you go to, uh, and you have people saying, you know, I've been coming to GA for 10 years, and this is the first time I felt like there was room for me, and then you go to Sunday morning, and you have a very um, intellectual, rational service about how do we uh, sell out, how do we live out ethical lives in light of our 13.7 billion year old universe story grounded in science and humanistic values and all the people that were dancing in the aisles last night are saying this is so boring uh, you know so it's uh, it's really it's, it's fascinating and UU writ large is wrestling with the same things we're wrestling with and, and doing their best to live into how do we live together in all our religious pluralism and all our diversity with integrity and how do we live in right relationship with each other. So it's, it's really fascinating. And for some of you, if the timing is right, perhaps you can say next year in Providence. Uh, the theme will be love reaches out. But I know that only a fraction of UUs from any congregation will be able to attend GA in any given year. So perhaps the more interesting question that I'll conclude with isn't what do 3,500 Unitarian Universalists do once a year, but what do 150 or 200 UUs do in Frederick, Maryland once a week or in their daily lives? And to echo a few questions from a workshop I attended, what is your passion? What gifts have, were you born with? What talents have you developed over time through a lot of hard work? What would you be willing to teach at least one other person in this congregation? And how valuable do you want your involvement with this congregation to be? How valuable an experience do you want this experience of us together to be? And what are you willing to risk as a member of this congregation, knowing that anything that's really of value involves risk and it involves giving something else up because you can't do everything at the same level? So each year at GA, being more connected to the larger UU movement, that re-energizes me. But each week, all of you remind me that we're not alone, that we're on this journey together. And having been your minister not quite yet for one full year, I can't wait to see what a few hundred Unitarian Universalists can continue to do right here in this time and place. In a few moments, I'll invite us to rise and body your spirit and sing together hymn 1028, Fire of Commitment. We'll sing just the first verse. But as we sing, I invite you to continue to reflect about what you feel called to accomplish, both as part of this congregation and as part of the larger UU movement. What is your passion? How valuable do you want your involvement with this congregation to be? What are you willing to risk? to be a member of this congregation, to give up. When you hear those words, fire of commitment, what people, places, or issues burn within you? What sparks are kindling within you that join together in religious community might become a blaze? I invite you to stand.